Have you ever heard the phrase, behavior analysis can save the world? Do you ever feel like that kind of thinking might make BCBA holes? During today's meal, I talk with a well-known behavior analyst about opening yourself up to collaborating with other fields, the start of the neurodiversity affirming movement, and finding glimmers of joy in everyday life, which reminds me of today's behavior bite. Dancing while eating. You know that little dance people do when they're eating something really tasty? I am definitely guilty of this. I particularly fawn over treats, and I absolutely love hotuk, which is a popular Korean street food. They're little pancakes filled with brown sugar fried up in some oil. The first time I had one in Korea, I did a little stimmy shimmy. Not sure if I got any weird looks. I was too focused. But it's such a perfect and easy way to find joy. Welcome to Behavior Bites with Rosie Eats, where we share a virtual meal with behavior analysts, psychologists, educators, and other helping professionals. Building a community can be hard when you're always pouring into others. So pull up a chair, grab your favorite food, and let's dig in. Hello, hello. I'm your host, Rosie. And honestly, I've been struggling to find the exact words to express how ecstatic I am for today's dinner guest. This person is a true trailblazer, someone who was doing neurodiversity-affirming ABA before it was cool, a woman who I've looked up to my entire career, and Haiki, the individual who made me believe and reinvest myself in ABA. It's Dr. Megan DeLeon. Hi, Megan. Hi. Oh, thank you for such a nice introduction. You see why I was like nervous? (laughs) (laughs) Are you ready for today's meal? Yes, I'm so excited. I wish we were having like real food though, because I always see your <laughs> and I look so good. <laughs> so let's start with our, our muse bouche, which is the chef's whim. I saw that you recently wrote this beautiful Facebook post about finding your glimmers. And so I wanted to see if you could tell us what that means. Sure. So I can't remember where I originally saw it. Like several months ago, someone, one of the pages I follow on Instagram posted about glimmers being the opposite of triggers. So glimmers are the things in your life that bring you joy. And I've been trying to focus more on that. I think there's probably a lot of people who can relate, whether it's through the pandemic or just life changes. It seems like I know a lot of people who are experiencing life changes. And there there tends to be a bigger focus on what are all the things that cause us stress and are difficult. And I've definitely been in that frame lately. So I'm trying to focus more on finding the joy in everyday things and getting back to experiencing those glimmers. And I hope other people can too. Yeah, that's beautiful. I feel like a lot of us especially in the field, like tend to skew towards like the negative. Like I had a difficult day. I, um, I was really struggling. I didn't get to eat, yada, yada, yada. But finding the joy in like everyday life is really important. One of the things I've mentioned this before, but one of the things that I've been doing is taking pictures of things that bring me joy. So obviously like food, but, um, I try I try for it to be very like organic. I don't want it to be like a scheduled thing because then it turns into homework. Um, (laughs) But whenever it's usually my cats because they bring me a ton of joy, uh, food and cats. But whenever they're doing something like funny or cute, I like will snap a picture of that. Or I had a friend make um, 
I don't know what they're called, but they're kind of like they have the crystals um, and they hang in your window and then they kind of project the rainbows around your room. Yeah. So I'll like take pictures of that and then I'll throw it up on, uh, I shouldn't say throw up. (laughs) I post it on my stories uh, of like, these are things that brought me joy to hopefully kind of give other people that prompt that they should be looking for things that bring them joy. I love that. (laughs) It's so funny. I'm kind of the opposite. If I don't make it a planned thing, like I think in the post I talked about for the next, however, however long it takes, I'm going to be posting a picture a day. And if I don't do that, especially make that public commitment, like it's not going to happen. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good, I think, I think I did that originally. I think I was like, okay, every day for 30 days or whatever, I'm going to post, um, one picture and then it kind of turned into like a routine or like I mean we all have our phones with us all the time so it's like oh like that looks really cool let me take a picture of it Mm -hmm. and then posting it that's like another another step because then you get to look at it again and like talk about it or like write a little caption or something yeah so usually I ask for our first appetizer um how you got into behavior analysis. And I feel like a lot of people will know, but for anyone that doesn't know, could you give us kind of like a short version of how you got into it? You want me to give a short version of something? Come on, Rosie. (laughs) (laughs) The really short version is like happenstance. I just Mm -hmm. happen to have multiple things occur in my life, but it started in undergrad when I had to do an internship and we only had two choices of places to do the internship and the one place was super close to where I lived and it was the Cleveland Clinic Center for Autism. So I worked there for my undergrad as an intern and just kept making choices based on the experience I was having in supporting autistic individuals. And that led me to have a PhD in behavior analysis. That's the shortest version I can give you. <laughs> yada, yada, yada. Now I have a PhD. <laughs> Yeah, that was way back in 2000. This is what's really sad, I think, at this point. Can we say that? That was in 2003. So at some point in the next few years, there's going to be some people certified that were not even alive when I did my practicum at the Cleveland Clinic. That's not sad. That's not sad. That's great. That's great. Because like we, as we're going through school and even like as new BCBAs, there's a certain set of individuals that we are supposed to learn from and look up to. And a lot of them don't look like the people that are studying, um, whether that's gender, definitely race, even uh, so much stuff. <laughs> Just started going through like the alphabet. So I think it's important that like, yeah, we're all aging and we're all going to get older and all of that stuff. But I mean, for me, being able to have you look like for me to look up to you, like was really important. Like I said in the intro, like I almost left ABA because I was like, what are, what is this? I see glimmers using that word. I see glimmers of hope and I know that what I'm doing is important and I see progress, but it's usually outside of the programs that are written or the the prompting protocols that were in place. And so I was like, well, how can I do this without what I thought was ABA? Like, how can I do the same stuff without doing these typical ABA techniques? 
And so I was like, I'm I'm going to leave and figure that out. And I think I had heard you on a podcast in like 2018, 19, something around there. Um, and I was like, who is this woman? <laughs> what is she talking about? How How can I do that? She's saying everything that's in my head, but I thought wasn't correct because no one else was saying it. And yeah. and then I um, low-key stalked you, <laughs> looked up everything I could find, all your old like YouTube videos. And I think like I said, it was your married name, doc- Dr. Megan Miller, Dr. Megan Miller, every single day, multiple times <laughs> a day to my husband that your name is seared in his brain. You're not the first person to tell me that, Rosie. That's like <laughs> the number of women who've been like, and my husband knows who you are. <laughs> interesting and weird at this Yeah, time. it's definitely. I know it's weird. That's why I'm like, okay. <laughs> but it's obviously not because multiple people in it. Then when I finally meet like at a conference or something and I meet their spouse or partner mm-hmm. or whatever, they're like, oh, you're Megan. <laughs> You're a household name here. I'm like, well, that makes me feel very special. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So even even if it's going to feel weird for people to be certified that weren't even born when you started, there's going to be an entire generation of people that get to know you from the start. Like yes. they can, hopefully people are incorporating a lot of uh, your work into like trainings and school and all of that stuff. So we're going to spin that. That's positive. <laughs> yes. All right. I'll focus on that part of it. <laughs> so for our second appetizer, what is a typical day in the life of Megan look like? Well, <laughs> it depends. Um, so for example, today I had this podcast scheduled and not a whole lot else. Basically, there's usually a mixture of me having some coaching meetings with people that I do some coaching with, whether it's parents or other behavior analysts, do some problem solving and clinical skill development, and then whatever online content I'm working on creating. So it might be I'm presenting for a company or a conference or myself. And I need to work on limiting that. I kind of overdid it from like February of 2023 until recently. September is my month where I've finally been able to breathe because I scheduled Mm. so many things. I think I made a post about it. I think I had like over 40 or something scheduled in like a year. So I need to slow that part down a little bit. (laughs) You say February, 2023, but you really mean like February, 2020. (laughs) Yeah, probably. So, and then sometimes I'm traveling. I do travel a lot. I go Sometimes right now, um, I go up to Indiana quite a bit, but I also travel internationally. So I was in Brazil this summer. I'm going to Saudi Arabia in November. I might be going to India at some point soon. So when I'm traveling, that obviously my days look a lot different (laughs) for that. When I go to the different countries that I go to, I try to do something fun and take in the local culture. And then what I'm even doing there work-wise always looks different too, because sometimes I'm working directly with families. Sometimes I'm working with clinics. Sometimes I just decide I want to go somewhere and then I connect with people once I get there. So yeah, I don't really have like a a normal day-to-day. Though 
time, the weeks when I have my son are a little bit more structured because we have to get up and I have to take him to school. Uh, One thing I'm trying to add right now, starting next week, is there's this new place here called Plansana that does, they have a sauna and then they have a cold bath and they do like breath work and yoga and stuff like that. So I'm trying to make that part of my self-care routine, Mm. get glimmers in that way and go like take him to school and then go over there before I start my work day. If I'm the type of person who, if I'm going to work out or do anything to take care of myself, it pretty much has to happen before I schedule meetings or start working because Mm -hmm. I get in the flow, I'm probably not stopping. (laughs) I feel that. I feel that. I used to get myself into trouble over like 2020 because I would just go, go, go. Like I would wake up, stroll over to my computer and just open it and just go all the way into like nighttime for work. And then all of those like free events that like you put on and a lot of other people in the field will put on and I would just go to all of those. (laughs) Never stood up, never walked, nothing like that. (laughs) We will get better from that one. Well, speaking of traveling for a palate cleanser, I actually wanted to ask you, what has been your favorite dish in like the world since you've gone to so many different places? Do you try like different foods or do you have a new favorite? Such an interesting question, Rosie. I wish I wasn't such a picky eater. That's just one of my sensory things. I will eat things for their texture and I will avoid things for their texture. Mm -hmm. I do try to be open and especially culturally, if someone's offering me a dish and I know it's something I wouldn't typically eat, I'll at least taste it. So when Mm -hmm. I was in Brazil recently, there's a local dish there that they kept saying we needed to try. And I could tell in the dish, it was, there was meat and there were like pig's feet and various body parts from the pig Mm -hmm. ears and stuff. And I was like, Okay, <laughs> this is not something I normally would do. I compromised though and found the little pieces of sausage and tried that part mm-hmm. of it. But um, to answer the actual question, my favorite <laughs> dish, I have two. One is hummus from, mm-hmm. actually I have three. One is a hummus, but I like the Lebanese version of hummus the best. There's just something about the seasoning and the way they make it that I just love it so much. Let me go this way. Okay, we're going to go based off of appetizer. (laughs) (laughs) So hummus is my favorite appetizer. And then for like a main dish in Egypt, they have um, a dish called koshery. And it's not rice, but it's like this pasta that I don't know, like circle shaped. It's hard to explain. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's like onions and some sort of seasonings. It's so good. I love it. Mm -hmm. And there's beans. And then desserts, I love uh, kanafa. Have you ever had kanafa? Is that a type of donut? It's a cheese. Oh. So they they cook it somehow and put like pistachio stuff on it. It's really like when the first time I saw it, I was like, cheese for dessert? This seems interesting. Even though we eat cheesecake and stuff, but it just, I don't know. I was like, hot cheese for dessert. Okay. (laughs) But I love it so much. And there's different kinds, but the best that I've had is in Turkey. They do it with this, like their vanilla, their ice cream is a very interesting texture. I don't know how to explain it. It's like real sticky. And mm. so the kanafa with their ice cream is just so good. But a lot mm. of the dishes, especially in the Middle East and then in like Greece and whatnot, are all very similar with like hummus and 
falafel and kanafa, like all of those types of things you'll see, but every single country has their own way of, of making it. And my favorite version besides the kanafa is always the Lebanese version for some reason. Mm-hmm. You went to South Korea, right? Mm-hmm. Do you have bagogi and um, bibimbap when you were there? Yeah, yeah. So there's bibimbap and um, bulgogi. There's like a beef bulgogi or pork bulgogi. Those are like pretty traditional in our house because my husband's Korean. So he makes that stuff. I mean, a bibimbap is just literally like a bunch of stuff around rice. Well, what I like about, and I didn't say this because I haven't traveled to South Korea yet, but if I had to pick a favorite food just in general... Korean food is my favorite. So <laughs> I like the the stone bowl and how it makes mm. it crispy on the bottom. Again, it's that texture thing. Yeah. So like purposely let the rice cook extra when I go to a restaurant and, you know, mm-hmm. it comes out in a stone bowl. I get so disappointed when the restaurants don't bring it out in a stone bowl. But I really like the, um, there's like a black bean noodle and I haven't had mm-hmm. it. And so it's like jajangmin or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the one time I ordered it, the waiter was like, no refunds. And I was like, okay, because <laughs> I guess people order it and don't like it for some reason. I don't know. They think it's too salty. I'm not sure. But I love the soup, the um, the soup with like the rice cakes. Mm, um, it's like eggs and then it has the rice, the little rice cakes. Yeah. Yeah. My other thing that I really love when I, you know, how they do the little banchan, bon the little appetizer. Mm-hmm. The side dishes. Yeah. Yeah. So I love the little, however it's prepared. I prepared it myself, but it's never as good. The just bean sprouts and it has like mm-hmm. the sesame oil on it. And they're just so good. I could eat like bowls of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but again, a lot of it's texture. Alan, what's the soup with the rice cake dials? Oh, Dakman Duguk. Is that it? Yeah, he's a Dakuk. And duck mandu gook is Korean rice cake soup with dumplings. Of course, I remember it as you're asking him. <laughs> yeah, of course. And then japagetti. What's the full name for that? Jajangmyeon, black bean noodles. Yeah, okay. It's based off a Chinese dish, but it's really popular in Korea. That's interesting because when I was younger, we were we were on vacation in Hilton Head and we met a family that was, they lived in America, but the mom was originally from China. And one day she made us, she was, she said she wanted to make us her version of, well, the real version of like ramen noodles. And when I had jajangmin, that's exactly what it reminded me of was the dish she had made us. Whatever she made us was the thing that inspired the Korean dish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's very popular. My favorite Korean dish, I struggle to pronounce it. And Alan and I will like go back and forth while he tries to like shape me. (laughs) So I've said it before. It's like a cold buckwheat noodle dish, which is really good in the summer. So it's nang myeon. Nang myeon. So the texture might not be up your alley because... It's very limited in what is inside of it. It's basically noodles, like buckwheat noodles, um, which are chewy. But the broth is actually iced. So it's a cold soup, which is perfect for the summer. Yeah. Um, and But you have to eat it kind of fast because the noodles will start getting like too chewy. But we lovingly, full lovingly refer to it as cold pickle soup because it's like <laughs> a pickled radish broth. 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, whenever I try to explain to people like, yeah, it's like cold pickled noodle soup. People are like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, it's so good. Just trust me. It's so good. So now we are on our entrees. So I wanted to ask, when was a time that you failed and what did you learn from that experience? The one that I think is the most impactful and helpful for people to hear about with behavior analysis and and the people that would be listening to the podcast, it's not like a one instance type thing, but it's more in the way we were trained to engage people when I started in the field and holding on to that for too long, I think is a failure. I, I missed out on learning so much by adhering to what I was trained behavior analysts were supposed to be doing. I'll explain. So, and I'm sure many listeners will connect with this. The idea that our science is superior to everything else, that we're the experts over everything, that you know we really have to advocate and push behavior analytic services above everything else. And if we encounter people that are saying things about behavior analysis that you know aren't accurate or might there might be a misconception, we should try to explain to them what why they're wrong kind of deal. And it's not that we shouldn't have a love for our science and be passionate about it or anything like that, but it was more the way we were trained to be, or at least in my training, but I think a lot of us trained to be so rigid and dogmatic and not collaborative about it. And we get the the reputation of being assholes. Mm-hmm. BCBA holes. Yeah. yeah. I, I had like little moments throughout my career because I'm just not that person necessarily, but I still definitely had interactions with people that would have gone differently. Or even when I did my PhD at Ohio State, the non-behavior analytic classes that I took, because it was a special education with focus on behavior analysis, I would have been more open and curious. So for me, that the failure of fully embracing being open and curious and seeing what the gift is and what I can learn from every interaction with any person I encounter is something I would consider a failure. Like I wish it hadn't taken half of my career at least to to get to the point I am now. And even now it's still difficult sometimes that I still find myself going back to my learning history <laughs> and I have to be very <laughs> intentional about it. But yeah, that to me, so if anyone's listening and you're not open and curious yet and you find that you're being kind of dogmatic or holding on tight to what your supervisors or professors taught you about our science being the end all be all, please reconsider. <laughs> yes. The whole behavior analysis can save the world trope. You just have to let us help you type of thing. I hardcore roll my eyes at that one. But it's, I mean, it's true. I did the the FIT BCBA coursework and I feel like they were more well-rounded in the education piece to it. Um, they were very clear with like, it's not just about autism. A lot of the co-instructors didn't even teach like didn't even work with the autistic population so I had that piece but then yeah my like company I was with when I was getting my supervision it was very much like it's our way or the highway you know like no they should just skip you know speech and OT and just get everything through us we need more hours and being trained in that is really hard to like rewrite that in your head I find myself also falling back into some some of the same rhetoric around it 
trying to increase hours or increase time or like put us first. But I think the more you kind of branch out and you like form partnerships and like collaboration with other disciplines, it's really important. And then also even some of the training, you know, of of hand over hand prompting and, uh, you know, you can't let the learner win. I find myself I don't do it anymore, but I still catch the little like voice in my brain of like, oh, they're letting him run away. And then the other voice in my head being like, so what, Rosie? <laughs> Just move on. And I'm like, all oh, right, that's right. Um, but yeah, it's like how we were trained. It's really hard to rewrite all of that because I mean, those behaviors going back to like the fun- fundamentals of like those behaviors were reinforced when we were being trained and reinforcement is strong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes they were punished too. If you weren't hand over hand, uh, I'll never forget being with my supervisor and then like the company owner and she reamed my supervisor and myself out for not like forcing a kid to do like stacking blocks or something like that. And we're like, he's crying and trying to run away, but okay. <laughs> yeah. That's why I think it's important to like systematic change across the board with with schooling and supervision and there's so many good supervisors out there now I think it's Dr. Tyra Sellers who talks about like the zombie supervisor and like that zombie bites three more zombies and then those bite three more and it kind of spreads that way and so when she talked about that in like 2020 or something I was really worried again about the field but now I've been kind of rewriting it in my head of like okay let's think of it as like the positive supervisors biting three more (laughs) we'll like positively affect everyone and hopefully the more that that happens if someone encounters a zombie supervisor they can have the tools to maybe even recover the zombie (laughs) so that they're Mm. they're not a zombie anymore and they can learn too (laughs) yeah Give them the antidote. It sounds like we have a whole movie here to plan, Rosie. <laughs> I know. I was. I was just like, okay, a little bit of this movie, a little bit of that movie. One of the things that I'm like really excited about, though, you know, I, I had to experience that failure, at least for where our field was when I started in it. And I think just maybe science in general, ha- being in an ego space and having that that attitude is pretty common. So I'm happy I had the failure when I did because there's so much happening right now with neuroscience and understanding how what's going on inside of our brains and bodies is affecting our behavior and especially looking at it from, you know, the stress perspective. So I'm really excited because I wouldn't be open and curious and willing to learn about all of those types of things in behavioral neuroscience and similar fields if I was still, you know, stuck in that kind of mindset. So I think now more than ever, because before when we were saying those things, we honestly didn't know any, but I feel like we didn't know any better. If you looked at the Mm -hmm. changes that could be made with the information that was available, especially in the seventies and the Mm -hmm. way people were being treated, I get a little bit where that ego came from, you know, that they Mm -hmm. were able, the behavior analyst at that time could come in and improve circumstances for people that others had given up on. I get yeah. it. And now it's 2023 and having that same attitude 
is that, and they almost sometimes I think needed it because they had to, you know, really advocate that this thing no one had heard of would make a difference for people. But mm-hmm. we're way past that at this point. Right, right. And if we, if people keep acting like what we do, the only thing that's solely necessary, we're going to quickly be slipping into situations where we're no longer effective because we're not informing ourselves enough or collaborating enough with all of the knowledge that exists now on being human and what what's going on for people and how they can create the best lives for themselves and get those glimmers happening more. <laughs> That's a really good point. And I think we forget about that a lot. I was talking to, she's an RBT and she just started grad school and she was commenting that it sometimes it's really hard to read these research articles because they're using what now is outdated language and outdated practices. And she's like, it's, I just, I don't even want to read it. And my answer to her was like, how I looked at it was like, even though it's hard and it's stuff that we wouldn't do today, it's important to kind of know the history and understand where where we were, where the field was, and how far it has come, and how much further it still needs to go, especially when we have an entire population um, that says ABA is abuse. And originally, when I was a student, I was like, no, it's not. I'm going to fight you. <laughs> and now when people say it, I, I go like, yeah, it, it it can be. It can be abuse. Still today, it's not old ABA. It's not new ABA. It's not today's ABA. It's not. It's just, yeah, it's still happening. It still happens. There's still reports of vinegar spray out in Texas. There's still shock therapy happening in my state. I mean, so it's it's still happening. But I like, and she listens to this, so I like your reasoning too of like, not only like, yes, we shouldn't be talking or practicing that way, but what was happening in the 70s was still head and shoulders above what was happening in the 60s and the 50s and the 40s and et cetera. And there's still people living today who had, you know, sent their kids to institutions and never saw them again or other worse things with their children um i was gonna say it's good to know our history i don't it it is but i don't know if i would use that adjective of good it is important to know our history well we went way off topic on like (laughs) what to learn from the experience but (laughs) i it, it all it's all cyclical it all like ties together because because that is something to also like learn from personal failures, professional failures, but also like the failure of the field and how much it can grow and how each one of us has a hand in in slowly like moving it in the right direction. Mm-hmm. What would you say to a student who's reading some of these articles from the 70s? How How could they kind of shape it in their head to learn from it and understand why it's important, but not get really hung up on like the wording? I think, especially from a historical perspective, there's two things that come up for me. One is for some things, it can be difficult to understand certain procedures or practices if we don't know what the original articles were that made those discoveries and kind of where they started. So trying to to read it more from 
a history lesson perspective and, and trying to understand where the original researchers were coming from, what was the rationale that they had for conducting the study and trying to answer the question that they were trying to answer. And then the other thing that comes up for me is a lot of the practices that are used now are still based on those studies from the 70s. So really trying to reflect on, take note, make make notice of especially students, you know, my guess is she was probably born in like the 2000s, (laughs) unless she's someone who's coming over to the field from some other time, but reading it as someone who's grown up in this world and these times, right, where their judgment of what's ethical and humane and moral and all of those types of things should be vastly different, obviously, than someone who was doing research in the 70s. So what does come up for them as, you know, icky or, not quite right, or how how would someone want to do that type of thing and really make note of it? Uh, because it's quite possible that if people haven't done the proper reflection and adjustments of their practices over the years, that that student might encounter situations where they're asked to use and then told, well, this is, it's in the research. <laughs> it's from this. Mm-hmm. So, and then they need to be able to, to think about how they're going to not like argue about it, but lean into whether it's they have to lean into their values and say, yeah, that research was done in the 70s and it's 2023 or kind of start building a rationale. And to me, the easiest way to build the rationale would be if they're asked to read an article from the 70s, it's a little bit more work, but citing that forward in Google Scholar, when you put the article in Google Scholar, you can click cited by and it shows Mm -hmm. you what I like to do is I do the cited by, and if there's only a few results, then it's easy to kind of sift through. But if there's, a, you know, thousands of articles, I'll usually try and just look at the the ones published in the last year. So I can kind of mm-hmm. see, because if you look at the most recent one, they're usually going to summarize all the stuff from the previous right. year and kind of get a quick picture of what's going on. So I can then say like, oh, well, these advancements have been made on that particular procedure or if nothing really comes up, like if this happens, like with toilet training or with imitation, you'll have things that when you do cited by in behavior analytic research, it's basically just people repeating the person before them and just continuing to show that the things were found that were found in the first study, right? And there's not Mm -hmm. like a lot of tweaks or extensions on it, but that doesn't make it appropriate still. So I'll often do as well is take whatever the content is. So if it was an article about imitation, for example, then I'll do that. Okay. Imitation and autism, what's going on in the research now with that? Hmm. How does that compare to what they did in the seventies? So again, I have a more well-rounded way of talking about it. If I have a supervisor or professor or someone try to say, oh, well, this is in the research. You need to do that thing. That's really good advice. Like, I think I'm learning. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like over here, like, okay, take a mental note of that. I do one correction because she'll kill me. She was born in the 90s. It was the late 90s, but <laughs> she is very particular on like she is She's a 90s baby. Okay. <laughs> she is. Yeah, she is. I'm sure there are people that will listen to the podcast who were born in the 2000s. <laughs> I was born in the 80s. And even then, like that's not that much later than the 70s. But I would still argue because things have moved so quickly with technology and everything that the even for me, I had kind of a unique experience because when and I was in elementary school through high school, our school system was one of the first 
to have more inclusive practices and mm. have um, special education students, you know, it was more, it wasn't like fully inclusive, but we had a very good program where we got to have lots of interactions, everyone. We had this cafe at the high school that was run by the special education department and um, gave jobs and things like that. So it was, and that was in the nineties to me, like my understanding of what's ethical and humane based on that experience is obviously going to be different <laughs> than someone doing in the seventies. Right. Right. You just opened like a whole nother, a whole nother idea in my brain. So my background, similar born in the eighties, but my school wasn't really inclusive. There was a whole special ed department and they had like a couple rooms, but we hardly ever saw anyone in there except on one day a week, they baked cookies. They made like chocolate chip cookies that you could smell in the entire school and they would sell out like in two seconds because all of in between classes, everyone would like run down there and try to buy them. And then they were starting to have like a store that had like maybe some candy um, and school supplies and stuff like that. So definitely behind what it sounds like your school was doing. But the idea that was popping into my head was how obviously research and we should be reading our research articles and furthering, you know, our learning and everything, but that everything we do will always be shaped by our history of just life, life experiences, culturally. And so it's interesting to hear that when you were in high school, it was much more inclusive And that has definitely probably played a big part into like what you do because it was laying this groundwork of, of being an inclusive and ND affirming person. And I was, I was really fortunate because there was a couple of people, this one person in particular, her name was Carrie, who just for what, I don't know if like it was based on her mom. I think her mom worked in special education. So she was a great model for us because when the students were coming in from the special education program, she was right in there like, come on, let's go hang out with with Mandy. And some of my best memories, especially from elementary school, were with Mandy and Chris, the two kids that were coming to our class. And Lorna um, was another, and we would hang out at recess and stuff. But I I mean, obviously, if we didn't have Carrie to model that interaction, I don't Mm. know that it would have been the same, um, because we weren't really like given any sort of training or anything on how to best, you know, be friends with peers that seem different than us or things like that. But Mm -hmm. she was really, really good model. And it was so wild to me when I went, especially in 2012 to 2015, when I lived in Columbus and worked in the special education, we went to different schools around the Columbus area and to see the programs that existed. And I, cause I just, you know, you, you think whatever you grow up with is what exists out world. Mm -hmm. So even at, you know, in my thirties, I thought like I had seen some things by that point, but even still it was the schools did, were making attempts to include it. Just nothing was as good as what I experienced growing up. But like when I got to Columbus, they, they had segregated schools still. Mm -hmm. They had schools where kids that like, weren't even going to their home school, they were getting shipped off to these schools that were built in like the seventies. And it was basically like daycare. It was awful. Yeah. I couldn't believe that something like that still existed in 2012, 2015. 2023. And there's places that are trying to fight to go back to that now. I've Mm -hmm. seen people post about, like, I think it was New Jersey or something. They were trying to argue to have, like, um, segregated schools again to better support students. And it's like, what? 
uh, so many things, so many things can be learned just from like your story of, so you had that model at school, but then you also had a trusted adult modeling being inclusive and including kids that are slightly different than you, whether that's, you know, behaviorally, mentally, physically, all of that. And that there's a lot of adults that don't know how to do that. And it was always like, oh, like, don't point, don't ask. We don't ask those questions. Um, I'm not referencing my parents because they do listen to this and not (laughs) referencing them. I'm just saying, like, there is a lot of adults that are like, well, don't look. And there's a whole section of now adult disabled uh, individuals that are like, I'm not like a secret. Like if I'm in the grocery store, (laughs) you don't have to like avert your gaze. Like I am just a human living my life, getting my groceries as like a population. If we can be like more inclusive of, even if you don't know, like just the bare minimum of of, like, look at them. (laughs) They're human. Give them, give them a little wave, give them a little hot, you know, like whatever. And like listening to, to disabled voices, autistic voices and it's wild. All of our kids were kind of shooed away, like I said. So I went to school just to be like a history teacher, like a high school history teacher. And I think some of the pivotal moments in my in my school was we had to take like one course on special ed, which looking back, it's like should have had way more than one course because um, she fit in. I think she only worked for one year because um, then I couldn't find her because I I kept on going back to everything I learned from that one class. And I'm like, I wish I could still talk to her Um, because she fit in like everything, like every single disability that you can think of. She like every single week was a new one. And she was like, bam, bam, bam. But she also put like a spin. Um, That's where I really learned about autism. And I still by far didn't understand anything. Um, That was the first time it was even posed to me. I was what, 22 or so. Um, And she explained that she had on separate occasions adopted two girls from Romania. Like I think she adopted one and then a year later adopted her sister. They both had autism. So she adopted them. She was also like the founding person of IEPs essentially and like the IDEA of like all of the education piece she said the first year that that came out her uh special ed classroom classroom with quotations was the boys locker room and she had to like fight to even get like a room room because she had like a class of six or seven in a locker room and she's like you can imagine all of the things that can go wrong in a locker room of like kids trying to run into the shower and like it smells and like tantrums on the floor of a locker room is not ideal (laughs) um and then she even had parents of we didn't have the word back then but like parents of neurodivergent individuals come and like speak to us Mm -hmm. um and that was amazing to hear from them and then she told us afterwards that that was the first time they've ever done something like that. Like she, they did it as a personal favor to her. And I was like, I thought they were like professional speakers. And <laughs> yeah, I, I still get so hyped about her. I wish I could find her because it was like one of those pivotal moments of you're like, wait a second. Yep. Could I be part of this? Like making this better and like being a part of it. And it wasn't until 
a decade later that I found ABA. So our second entree, what is something that people seem to misunderstand about you or like one thing people are generally surprised to find out about you? I'll tell you two. One is apparently I have tall girl energy. I don't know what that is. <laughs> but when they meet me and see that I'm only like five foot, five foot one, they're like, I thought you'd be taller. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, Thanks. Like, I don't really know. I don't really know what that means. But um, yeah, that one I just think is funny. The other one that it's a little bit harder from like a professional standpoint, and I kind of go back and forth on this, Sarah Troutman and I have talked about it a few times. There's this, this story that people tell that really didn't start until I was more vocal about social justice and especially neurodiversity affirming practices. I've always, I not to the level of knowledge I have now, and I still have work to do, but I've always, if people have ever attended any of my trainings, even starting back in 2008, when I first started doing mm-hmm. them, they would know that I was presenting content that's neurodiversity affirming in the way that I could. I didn't have that terminology then, but it's still right. like very much aligned with the perspective of my clients and doing whatever is the most ethical and humane. And I've made lots and lots of changes and evolutions over that 15 years. But when I, like in 2020, when I started being even more vocal about supporting um, autistic voices and uplifting and all of that, and trying to get more space for that, this, this story started being pushed by people who didn't agree with me that I'm not scientific and I only am on social media to be like a celebrity of some sort. Mm, and I just mm-hmm. it's really funny because I use social media to try to disseminate the information because I know that's where people go. I don't really know a thing about social media. <laughs> like I've never researched it. I have no idea what I'm doing. I honestly don't even have like a big following when you look at other people who have put more time and attention mm-hmm. to it. People know me because of my presentations that I do or like right. the mentorship that I've done. But yeah, that that one really bothers me quite a bit when I see people make posts using my name and saying or implying that myself or a few others are only doing the work we're doing because we just want to, we just want attention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't know what we're Cloud doing. Cloud chasing. Yeah. 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 And then Sarah, like, is always like, so what? <laughs> <She's>, <laughs> isn't that what social media is for? Like, why not? <laughs> it's like, yeah. but it's still, it's, it's the implication that they're, you know, trying to imply that because I'm doing like, whatever activities I'm doing online, I must not know what I'm talking about. And I must not mm. be scientific. Because if I was scientific, I'd be publishing papers and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, first of all, that stuff takes a lot of time and isn't very effective. Like it's right. not going to reach that many people. I realized very early on when I was getting my PhD that the time I was trying to put in to submit something to editors that they would like I could have been presenting like five or 10 presentations mm-hmm. and I could have definitely connected with hundreds of people with real strategies that they could use yeah. and then leave the room with their clients and go do those things because of the videos and materials I gave them. So why would I waste my time <laughs> trying mm-hmm. to publish papers to make an editor happy? Especially papers are, most papers are behind a paywall. I mean, it's already being like niched down to like people looking into behavior analysis, but then even a smaller margin to like people that have access to 
the articles. And like, I know you can get a lot through the BACB's portal, but even that can be difficult to navigate. It's not as, I think it's gotten better, but I know in the beginning when I was trying to navigate it, I just like wouldn't work. So quick tip, if you use Google Scholar, when the articles come up, there's usually, it'll say like versions and you click on that nine times out of 10, even if it's behind a paywall, somehow when you click on versions, it will take you to a PDF of that, that article. That's a really good tip. I did that. I was just doing that the other day to like gather resources for, um, I have a, uh, a collaboration corner. Um, it's like a collaborative CEU presentation. So like we talk about one topic and everyone's free to also talk and collaborate. So it's a more interactive afterwards. I was gathering like research articles and I was like, I could just give them the list of everything that both me and my partner had come up with. I'm like, but I think it would be beneficial if I actually downloaded the articles for them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so many were behind paywalls. And so I was like maneuvering around, <laughs> clicking versions, clicking. Sometimes I would even just say PDF. The article thing though, too, like a lot of the times, because you have, you only have so much space to publish your stuff, you, like the what's actually in the article, even though you get to see data was collected, it's not necessarily the information a practitioner is going to benefit from. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's so like, yeah. boiled up or not relevant to the clients they're working with. There's just so, I just hate this idea that publishing and having journal articles is superior to the everyday work that people like me and you are doing as practitioners and the differences we see and the creative strategies we come up with and then sharing those with each other. And then we Mm -hmm. collect data and show that it works. Like there's so much more that can be accomplished through what you were just talking about, the collaboration corner, other presentations, especially if they're more workshop how-to style than just like showing people your graphs. <laughs> Look at my graphs. <laughs> so true though. Back to the first one, the the tall girl energy. That's so funny because the uh, when I went to Baba, I met someone in person for the first time. We had been talking for a few years and they could not get over how tall I am. I'm 5'9", so I guess that's, yeah. that's I think tall. I was surprised by how tall you were too. <laughs> But she's also like same height. She might be a little bit taller than me. And she's like, oh, I thought you were short. I thought you were like five, five. And I was like, how do we give off? I don't know. I, she <laughs> says she thinks it's because when I record, my phone is slightly above shooting down. And I was like, that's just a, like a millennial girl type shooting. You always shoot from above right? because you're trying to hide your chins. Like, <laughs> like looking at her and she's like so beautiful so like you know thin and tall and I was like some of us don't have that luxury we have to get our <laughs> angles just right it's so funny though it's funny how like what the stories that people make up and some are like fine like whatever I don't care how how tall you think I am um but then same with social media and you know I res- this resonates with me a lot because for me, that's that's how I do my dissemination. And that's how I how I build community because sticking to like who you directly work with, it's great. It's great to have a good community with where you work. I work for a great company. But at least for me, like I need more than that. I need to be like connecting with a lot of people. And uh, back to you in my early career, like you provided that with the Do Better uh, movement. Now it's Do Better Collective. 
Um, but you prevented that. And so now I'm in this place where I feel like I have a community and I just want to share it with others. And so the majority of, of products, I guess I could call them products that I put out there is just about building community. So I have like the collaboration corner. I do like a Sunday chat. So once a month on Sundays, we just get together on a Zoom and chat. You know, there's you don't get to see you or anything. We're just usually venting about our month. And then I do like independent, like one-on-one mentorship. But then I also do a group mentorship with Meg Solomon. And again, it's like, I always feel weird because obviously I charge because I'm like, I I need just a little bit to cover the cost of it. But I always feel weird because, yeah, it can feel kind of gimmicky and kind of like pushing products on people. Um, but I try to make it like super affordable. I'm going off on a tangent. But originally, even pre-products and everything, it was just a way to disseminate information, disseminate what I was learning um, and build community with others. And I don't know, <laughs> wasn't really to get like famous. I'm sure you're learning more and they're learning more than if you all just sat around and read some research articles. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's important to have like different ways to disseminate the field and disseminate the science behind it because there's no way that we're going to continue to grow staying within the same guidelines of like research articles, professional conferences. Like look at, I think, you know, um, Jared Van, he was just on here on the podcast and what he's done, I, I feel like what I've seen, what he's done for the standard acceleration chart and precision teaching goes far above what I've seen before. I mean, I know I've gone to presentations and and there's like Kathy Fox and Amy Evans who are amazing, but he's out there like yeah, throwing it in your face with like catchy one minute videos. And I think that's exactly what we need. Yeah. He's doing all the things that people have said need to be done. Like he's fine. He's the one getting it done. <laughs> yeah. I forget what the one was I watched um, that he had posted on Facebook recently, but it was really good. And I loved at the end, he was like, tricked you. <laughs> I'm talking about <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, he's really good. I've talked to him. Cause like you said, you don't know how to do social media, which is true. I feel like kind of the majority of us are stumbling through it, but since I, I understand like the basics of it, of like the hook, like hooking people in and like the call to action piece and, um, the little, I don't know what it's called, but at the end where you flip it on them, I, and that plus transitions, I get, I geek out about like transition videos. I can understand not only are you actually teaching people stuff, but the craft in making these videos. Yeah. They're only a minute, but he's probably spending an hour, like writing, editing, all that stuff. So I can understand the craft. And so I'm like, you are doing amazing every time I'm like that transition was fire <laughs> Ooh, that flip at the end was oh I went wild you know well you just told me more things than I've ever known about social media <laughs> so <laughs> to go ask chat GPT to help me with all that <laughs> <laughs> you could good then you're gonna ask uh uh Shelby Dorsey to teach you about chat GBT because she loves that yeah, social media, uh, it's one of those love-hate relationships. It's definitely a special interest. I definitely love to like learn 
more about it and how to use it for the good. But then I do also get very mad at how glitchy it is and how like long certain things take. And then when they show me the same clickbait reel, like I always get the same ones. There's one, I'm going to say it and then my phone's going to continue to show it to me. There's one, (laughs) this is a tangent, but there will be the same reel over and over and over. So there's one of like this baby who their tear duct gets clogged or something. And so there's a doctor like pushing it and I've never clicked on it. So I guess since I've never physically watched it, it just keeps on trying to like push it towards me. And I'm like, how is that interesting to me? Like, I have no interest. I don't even like pimple popping videos. Like, like, please. When those types of things come up, I immediately go to the little dots and I'm like, hide ad. (laughs) I don't know if they do that on Instagram or TikTok, but on Facebook, when Mm -hmm. I see that stuff, I'm like, nope. (laughs) Yeah. So wild. They're always just trying to push something at us. You know what, Rosie? I'm gonna I'm gonna be real sad if I now have those kinds of videos on my phone. <laughs> so <as> well. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's always listening. It's always listening to us. Okay, we are at our dessert now. So for our first dessert, what is your favorite thing about what you do? I definitely love being able to connect with so many different people and provide them with other ways of practicing. Like you said, for some folks, it's they're potentially even thinking about leaving the field or aren't quite sure that this is what they want to be doing. And those are the people we need in the field because those are the ones who are going to be making the changes and pushing us along to better practices. Mm. Getting to hear the stories of people who have learned from me and it's affected their practices, that keeps me inspired and passionate about... I mean, whether anyone listens to me or not, I'll probably keep putting the stuff out there because I think it's important, but it sure makes it a lot more exciting and motivating when I know that it's resonating for people and it's helping them practice more effectively and humanely. And it's kind of similar to what you were talking about before, where I can then picture for each person that contacts me, not only will it be the people they supervise have better practices, but then I think about all the clients who will be getting different services because they've been able to connect with the work that I'm doing or that other people who I pull in to present are doing as well. I think that's super important of like, it kind of reverberates back to like the social media, that's another reason why I think it's important because I can only be effective to the people that I come into contact with. And so if I didn't put stuff on social media, that would be such like a finite amount of people like, yeah, I could present at conferences that there's a lot of barriers around that for people, you know, to travel and a lot of conferences you have to like pay your way to get to and pay for. But yeah, putting stuff on social media, it's free for everyone. It's free. It takes my time, but it's free for me to do and it's free for people to come into contact with. And so it's just it's just a better way for for these like lessons, whether they're like little snippets or what, but to be disseminated to a wider population and kind of like reverberate the effects because then something that I post someone could engage with and then be like, oh, I really, I want to learn more about that. Do you have resources? Like 
when I did a whole series on like ascent, there was a ton of people in my DMs like asking, like, do you, is there research backing this? And I go, oh yes, there is. Are you ready? And I created an entire like document of like links to all of the articles and podcast episodes and presentations and CEUs and everything. And I was like, here you go. I did the work for you. Just please learn more about it and how to, how to honor it. But yeah, I, that's that's one of my favorite parts too. Thanks. That's a good one. <laughs> but on that same vein, our second dessert is what has creating the Do Better Collective meant to you? So I started the Do Better movement in 2018. I knew when I sat down and wrote out my plans for starting the movement that it was something that that was going to be the thing I do <laughs> for, I would figure out how to just make that my main focus. And I'm really excited that I've been able to do that. And uh, it was interesting the other day, I was looking at some data and I think I have like 52 courses now or something. Um, and that I haven't even created all the courses I want to create. So <laughs> there's still work to be done. And obviously, like, you know, the ones from 2018, now that it's been five and a half years, almost six years, I kind of go back and forth on like, should I redo those? But I'm kind of at the point where I like to keep things from that historical perspective we're talking about, too. Mm -hmm. So people can kind of see the transitions that have occurred and then give encourage people to think critically. So if there's something in this webinar that doesn't seem to match what I've talked about in other webinars or what you're doing in like your neurodiversity affirming practices, what, how, what would you change? How would you change it? You know, mm -hmm. I encourage them. So that's kind of part of next steps. I think for me is really, I'm not saying I'm doing the work for people, but encouraging people and, you know, not to be spoon fed by anyone, myself or anyone else, and really engage in that critical thinking. So I'm, I'm really excited to have, been able to connect with so many people and build community. And I'm really looking forward to continuing to collaborate. I've done a lot more collaborations with companies and trainings for companies to that are wanting to do more neurodiversity affirming practices. So we'll do live trainings and then we meet to talk about how they're implementing everything. So to me, that's kind of, it's not the next step necessarily because I'll obviously mm -hmm. still be doing online content for do better. But in terms of, you know, where I'm experiencing the most joy or feel like I'm contacting the most impact is that, okay, well, how are people implementing now? Right? Like there's mm -hmm. a ton of stuff out here. What are people doing with it? And how can we help mm -hmm. make sure implementation goes well? So mm -hmm. that's what I'm, I've been thinking about a lot and I've been working on, I have a couple of things I'm finishing up. I started a couple of years ago making, um, actually if we, I really think about it, it's probably like 10 years ago, but, um, <laughs> I started making my own assessments that I want to use, mm. like encourage people to use that's more strength-based and aligned with the research on communication. So I'm hoping to finish that either in 2023 or like early 2024. And then I've also been working on from that implementation aspects, creating more materials for implementation. So if, people see me present on developing connected relationships or emotional regulation or whatever the topic is, they also have a packet they can use to help guide themselves or train others on that content and really reflect on how they're implementing things. 
I don't even know if I fully answered your question because I kind of got off on a tangent there. <laughs> but I will say, like, I definitely knew when I made Do Better that it was something that, it, like, probably for the rest of my career, I would be focusing on that aspect of service delivery. Now, I've met, I had met so many people by that point and basically told them the same things over and over that it was just clear Uh to me that for the rest of my career, I would be coaching and training others and really just putting all of my attention toward that. That's really exciting about the assessment because yeah, I've been in a lot of talks with other people about assessments and every time I have to do a reassessment, I always give like the same spiel to the families of I hate this assessment, but it's what insurance accepts. And so we're going to do this and I'm going to send it off to insurance and then we're going to do other thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that the hard part, I think, because at least in this first round of what I want to put out for people, it's going to look vastly different than what most people are accustomed to. And it definitely is. I doubt it's something people, unless they have like really loose insurance requirements could use, but it's more to guide their Mm -hmm. practices and prioritize how they're delivering their services and what goals they're working on. Um, Mm -hmm. But eventually, like if, if it becomes something that people are wanting to use and then give me feedback of, Hey, I actually could use this with insurance if X, Y, and Z happened with it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Then I could mm-hmm. you know, work on, on those types of things or if try to get some data and stuff like that. It's wild to me though, that insurance companies are particular about certain assessments being used and those assessments themselves don't even have data to support it. They're just yeah. known. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> um yeah, and it's it's all deficit based. Um I have this conversation with uh Dr. Madi quite often and and Meg. Um that is always deficit based and it can be really disheartening for for everyone involved, for if the client is is involved, the parents to just list off everything a kid can't do. Um defeating to me to be like, I don't even think your five-year-old should be able to do this, but that's what the assessment says he's supposed to be doing. So, (laughs) um, so yeah, I'd be really excited to see a strength-based one. Um, and if you need a beta tester, I will (laughs) be the first person to sign up. (laughs) Okay. I will definitely be reaching out to you about that. (laughs) We are at our nightcap and I was actually going to ask you if there were any new and exciting projects that you were working on, but you started answering that. Uh, So anything besides the assessment that you're working on? So it's not like a a big project, but in December, speaking of some of the skills we want to work on, I'm partnering up with Jen D'Ambra and we're doing, or Jen Ferris, she's both She's a precision teacher and we're going, we're doing a series. We'll probably start advertising it sometime next week called let's get critical. And we're going to be doing, it's might be a little similar to what you were talking about with the collaborative piece, but it's a series where we'll, we're going to have four different topics, functional assessment, skills assessment, communication. I can't remember exactly what we decided on because we had a lot to choose from, but I know for sure functional assessment and skills assessment are two of them. And we're going to do a few slides, but most of the actual webinars are going to be engaging in critical thinking and practicing, really looking at when we're talking about functional assessment, what are the options available to us and how do we decide 
how to individualize that for clients. And then same for, you know, skills assessment and things like that. And she's going to be pulling in, I have enough knowledge of precision teaching, but not the same level that she does. So she'll be pulling in that perspective. So you're not just practicing thinking critically, but you're getting hopefully some new information as well for people that aren't as familiar with precision teaching. So I'm really excited. We're probably not going to include anything about charting. It's more just the things that precision teachers know based on using the chart and the problem solving focus of precision teaching. So she'll be tying in a lot of that content. So I'm super excited about that. But yeah, the other projects, the bigger ones that I talked about, the assessment and like implementation guide. Yeah, I'm sure like I finally, like I said, had a chance to breathe a little bit in September, which is good. And then my brain starts spinning on what are all the things I could start to like, oh, what are the things (laughs) I need to do so I can get myself busy again and hit a wall? Right. (laughs) You think I'd learn at something, but... No, never, never. (laughs) You know, when you're like sitting on the couch and you're like, I could be doing so much more than this. Yes. Yeah. I've been slowly training myself on that one too. I'm like, it's okay to watch a TV show and chill for a second as I have like, my computer next to me of like, it's ready any moment that I have inspiration to start working at at (laughs) 930 at night or something. But awesome. Okay, so where can listeners find more about you and your projects? There's quite a few places. (laughs) So for the various things that I'm doing, I usually post the most on Instagram, which is Dr. Do Better on Instagram. I always forget. I think it's Dr underscore do better because the full thing was yeah underscoring it is so that's usually where I'll make like if depending on what conferences I'm presenting or projects I'm working on because not everything is tied in with do better collective mm-hmm. so wanting to fully follow that would be one and then of course if they want to see what types of things are happening with the collective we're on Facebook Instagram the website if you just Google do better collective the website's kind of a long one to say so <laughs> All of it will be in the notes anyways, but yeah. And then I do, you know, even though I don't know much about social media, I try. um, That's a goal for 2024 too. I don't know how to say it from a project standpoint, but I really do want to get better at making TikToks. It's a huge goal of mine because you've sat in my webinars. I can talk for hours. I want to be able to get to those minute, you know, being able to convey like an important message, whether it's about life or behavior analysis and like a short 10 second clip or minute or whatever. <laughs> I got to be able to connect with the younger generation. <laughs> I liked your one though, that you have, I think you have like a gray hair filter or something. No, it's not a filter. It's a wig. I bought, oh, Okay, okay. we did dance parties for COVID and I bought this wig to wear for one of the dance parties thinking it did, it looked different than it did from like the order. And when it came, I was like, this is like an old person's wig. Like, <laughs> But then, yeah, so that was my very first TikTok. I made that in 2021 when I was doing some peak stuff with um, Carolina with Defy. We had like a little oh, thing. We okay, okay. And she just kept like pushing me. She was like, Megan, you've got to do something more exciting. We have to have good ads for this event or whatever. And I was like, what can I do? It's <laughs> probably the most creative and <laughs> the most creative my brain has ever been. And I don't know if I'll ever get it back. <laughs> The thing with mine is like how I get inspiration for reels is I have to watch a bunch of reels 
but it's such a time suck too, because there's a lot of terrible reels out there, but I will sit there and watch all of them. So then uh, like an hour or two or more (laughs) gets eaten up watching these pointless reels. And then I don't have inspiration anymore. So (laughs) it's like this fine line of like finding that inspiration. I'm just not into watching things like on TikTok. Now that I know it took me a while to learn how to speed it up. But even on TikTok, when the videos are only like one, two minutes, three minutes, I have to have it at double speed. Drives me crazy on Instagram. I don't know how to do it. I don't think it goes faster on Instagram. I don't think you can. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Facebook and YouTube. When I listen to podcasts, like I always have it at a higher speed because Mm -hmm. I just want to know, like, and it's so funny because I talk so much, but when I'm watching other people, I'm like, just get to the point. <laughs> like, tell me what I need to know. <laughs> same, same. I'm the same way. I'm the same way. I, I think that's uh, part of at least my neurodivergence of like, okay, I already know what you're going to say. Just say it. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. But like my, I have friends who are real creative and, um, and like really geek out. It sounds like you do a little bit too, but like geek out on like, well, and Ryan was that Ryan's that way. O'Donnell, mm-hmm. like they noticed like so much about the video and how it was yeah. created and this thing and that thing. And I'm just like, I just want to know what I'm supposed to learn. Just tell me the thing I'm supposed to know. <laughs> I don't want to be entertained. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do. I notice all of that because I've tried to do it. I think that's the thing is I've tried like People can make it look so easy and seamless. And then when you go to do a transition video and you're like, wait a second, like even the one, so back back to the mugs, because that's one of the most recent ones. Someone very simple. It's uh, a mug with black coffee, right? Pointing down and there's black text on the coffee. So you don't see it until you pour the cream in and then it appears. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, that's super easy. That's like, that's one shot, no transitions or anything. So I go to do it and I realize like everything has to be placed in such a particular way, like pouring cream in, usually when you pour cream in, you know, you just pour it in and your hand goes into the frame. So I had to pour it like off screen almost and trickle it in. And it was, it was also, I only drink nut milk or oat milk and those can appear chunky. (laughs) This sounds so gross. And so I had done my like almond milk or something and it was chunky. I should actually post the the outtake with that one because I was just like, this looks disgusting. <laughs> and then I switched to the oat milk and it was seamless. But yeah, it's like all these things that people make it look easy and that ends up being really hard. Yeah. So we are at our end. I just wanted my nightcap that I was going to add in and I had to write it because I'm going to get <laughs> going to get all flustered about it. Before we say bye, I just want to truly take a minute to thank you for everything that you have done in the field and me personally. You really laid the groundwork for what uh, neurodiversity affirming practices today. And I know that you got a ton of pushback for it, and that might still kind of ring around in your head. But behind all of that hate, you need to understand that there was like a thousand behavior analysts that you helped light a fire inside of them. And we were able to see that a different, more soul-filling, compassionate way to ABA. And so I need you to know that I credit you and the Do Better movement for who I am in ABA. 
and just how much I appreciate it. So <laughs> I'm going to stop before I cry too much. <laughs> now we both cry. <laughs> but it's just really important for me, for you to know and everyone listening to know just how important you are. Like, Aww, thank you, Rosie. <laughs> That's so kind of you. It's been so wonderful watching because I remember our first few interactions. And of course, you know, COVID <laughs> sucked in so many ways, but I was able to better connect with people like you. And I've absolutely loved watching your uh, various ways of taking different food <laughs> meals and <laughs> talking about behavior analysis and being so creative with that and how you were one of the first to, especially when things got rough there in 2020 with some of the pushback I was getting, you were one of the first people to step up and uh, and be willing to put your, even though you're, you were fairly newer to the field and, and all yeah. of that, you were willing to stick yourself out there and push forward with those practices. So I hope you recognize how important that is as well. Thank you. Thank you. I know we're like dragging on now, but like low key, my goal in, I'll say 2019, my goal if in 2019 is I just, I felt so isolated and where I was. And so my goal pre-pandemic was like, I just need to find a way to, to meet these people and like, somehow form a connection. I didn't by far think I would ever be like friends with a lot of you, especially you. Cause you, like I said, you were very high up in my brain, but like, that's why I said, I was like, I just need to figure out a way to be a part of the community. And then when 2020 happened, and like you said, like it, it was terrible and it still is, but it provided so much like space for me to be able to connect to like truly live into the goal that I had made for myself. And I just started with showing up like dance parties. I'm like, I'm there. The like little, like, I don't even remember what you guys called them, but like even what um, Beth Garrison was doing. And I'm like, let's just, I'm going to show up. I'm just going to keep on showing up and I'm just going to say random things in the chat. So you remember my name and I'm going <laughs> to speak up and I'm going to put myself out there. Even though my anxiety was like, oh, what are you doing? <laughs> um, yeah, so it was, yes, thank you. I will take, I will say thank you. It was me kind of stepping up, but it was also you and a lot of people in the community like providing the space for us to do that and then also showing us just a different way of how to do everything. So, okay. <laughs> Stop. Stop fangirling, but yeah. <laughs> okay. So thank you for sharing a bite with us. Um, everyone listening, please go follow Megan on Instagram and check out the Do Better Collective. Um, all of the links, she gave me a ton. So all of them will be in the show notes and on my website. As always, you can find me on Instagram at rosieeatsbx or, or my website, rosiebx.com. If you enjoy the show, please help my dissemination efforts by leaving a rating and a review so others will find it. And until our next meal, bye.